Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. Exactly two weeks to the day before this interview, Beatrice Finn received a phone call from Norway. It was the Nobel Committee informing her that the NGO she leads, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, was awarded the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. The committee cited ICANN, as the NGO is known, for its work to achieve an international treaty against nuclear weapons. The treaty is often compared to the Landmine Treaty or the Convention Against Chemical Weapons in that it invokes broadly humanitarian principles to ban what is an inherently indiscriminate weapon. The treaty was finalized in July and has already gained over 50 signatories from governments with many more expected in the near future, and in this episode we discuss the logic behind this treaty and its intentions. And Beatrice describes how it took a kind of fearlessness and disregard for traditional power dynamics to succeed here, and it's worth pointing out that this is a treaty that is opposed, at least for now, by all the nuclear weapons-possessing states. We also discuss Beatrice's life and career and how she became interested in nuclear issues, which before a key internship seemed distant and relevant more in academia than in the real world. It is a great conversation, and we start off with a discussion about the moment she learned her organization had won the Nobel Peace Prize. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our very robust archives of conversations like the one you are about to hear that tells both personal stories and also issues of substance in international affairs. If you are a regular listener, thank you for being a regular listener. Please feel free to reach out to me anytime if you have suggestions of people I should interview, topics I should cover, or anything else that's on your mind. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com, or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And now here is my conversation with Beatrice Finn. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And just two days before, there's been a, a news report speculated that we were one of the contenders, not the favorite, but one of them. So there had been some sort of excitement in the campaign about this. I don't think anyone realistically thought that we would win, but it was just exciting to be uh, mentioned in the in the kind of running. Um, but of course, uh, a quarter to 11, 10 to 11, it was like, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. Then. And that's okay. You always feel a little bit disappointed though. Like you lost somehow. Yeah. Did you do something wrong? No. 
but uh, no, but and then the phone rang and um, it was for me. And he had this very strong Norwegian accent. And I immediately just like, oh, my God. No, no, no. It's it's a Norwegian journalist. It's, it's just a... And then he introduced himself from the Nobel Committee. And I just had to like sort of grab my, my colleague because he was watching the live webcast from she's oh, she's Norwegian. So she, she was following the Norwegian kind of pre-talk on mm-hmm. TV. I was like waving to her. I said, turn the volume down, turn the volume down. <laughs> this is important. And she's like, yeah, 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 whatever. And um, and I felt like that sentence that he said, you know, the presenting himself and that it's calling with some good news or at least I hope it's good news he said and I was just it took forever and I get to the point <laughs> like is this real or is are you calling me to ask for someone else's number or something oh, oh my know. gosh he was he was like giving a preamble in his Norwegian <sighs> accent I know. from the committee before really, yeah. that's really funny <laughs> I, I really really want him to just can you just say it if it's real or not um and then you know he yeah and then he gave us the uh, they, it's actually recorded and they post it on Twitter. Oh, really? They record Twitter. the conversation? Yeah. I mean, so they're they stringing you along they were... before they actually say, mm-hmm. congratulations, um, you've received the Nobel Peace Prize. And I feel like you can sort of like, I think you can almost hear my like excitement with every word you're saying like, oh my God, I think this is it. I think this is all. This is unbelievable. Uh, and then I'm just saying, wow, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a very eloquent response. <laughs> Uh, I think it's that's, that's of... about the perfect amount of elocution you can expect <laughs> in that kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, and then he's like, yeah, you know, and then I'm saying something like, oh, I'm just really shocked. Um, and yeah, so that was it. That's amazing. So so what was your, who was your first phone call? Like, What was your first conversation after that? Well, um, they immediately put me on hold then because he had to go to the live. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How am I, what am I supposed to do? Um, and then they had a, they put me over to Stockholm uh, for just a quick word with the, um, the staff team there that runs the Nobel website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted some immediate, they wanted a, like a mini interview. I was like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Like, uh, I'm still haven't really. And at the same time, my two colleagues are just staring at me. Like, is this real? I tried to mouth to me, like, is it for real? Is it really real? And then my colleague said, it's not a prank, right? So then I, of course, panicked and thought that maybe this is a really evil prank from someone. You know, Um, I keep hearing from people who tell these stories that their first instinct is that it's a prank from a friend. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like, you know, that would be like the meanest thing ever. So well, it's, and it's an elaborate yeah. ruse at this point, if it is a ruse, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so if anyone is thinking about doing that, don't. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so mean. No, and then and then I um I hung up. And the thing is, like, my friend is then filming this, so he has to not film. This is not. We haven't published this because I'm just like walking around, leaning towards the wall, and like trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And you can see that I'm grabbing my phone, and people are like, oh, did you? Who are you texting? I'm like, I'm not texting anyone. I'm turning my notifications off. <laughs> you just want to enjoy <laughs> this moment. I had a feeling that this was going to blow up my phone. <laughs> yes. Uh. Um, so, yeah. So, um, no, I texted my husband then afterwards. And then we watched the the actual announcement at the same time, just to before we did anything else. Because we wanted to make sure that it was really real. Yeah. And then we you still had doubts took... at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And then we um, actually took a few minutes. Like the phone started ringing, of course, immediately. Mm -hmm. But we decided to just try to watch them read out the whole, the whole justification, and just before we start, you know, panically answering the phone and try to figure out what to do next, we took like five minutes just to stand stand there. 
And and how I mean, so how did that initial moment? So you took a few moments, but then at some point you have to turn your notifications on. You have to answer your <laughs> phone. How do you like deal with the sudden onslaught of of attention? I mean, both to you personally yeah. and and also to to your work. I mean, it, yeah, it was extremely intensive. And you know, we're we're a big campaign in terms of our partner organizations spread out all over the world. But the headquarters in Geneva, we're three and a half staff people. So we don't have a media team or, and it's not like you've made a plan for this. I mean, when we, when there were speculations, we, you know, you just entertain it in your mind for a few seconds and then oh, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So um, luckily we had where our office is located in a big office building that's owned by the World Council of Churches, which is a big uh, collection of all churches yeah. around the world. And they have a whole uh, communications department and five minutes after they came running up to our office do you need help and i'm like yes oh that's amazing so, the world council and that they're the, yeah. a great a great humanitarian organization um absolutely and they are members well. of ican as well oh, okay. they're okay. they a partner organization of ican so they we work with them closely of course yeah it was one um, of your partners so that helped. put us in touch i should say i think it was the arms control association people i've interviewed before on the podcast suggested mm. that, that i reach out to you so I think it's it was really um, they had to set up the press conference, but of course, you know I know some of the journalists in Geneva uh, from uh, the uh, the correspondents, you know Reuters and AP and those. So uh, they were all of course on their way up to the office. Some of them tried to escape from the security. They tried to block, stop them in the entrance, of course. But some of them like snuck around and found our office and uh, knocked on the door, of course, of our tiny little office that we share. Um, and there's actually some funny photos because my colleague Daniel, he puts up all these funny pictures on our walls. So mm. I'm doing this whole live interview with Reuters and AP. And obviously they must have seen it. I didn't see it because I was just talking to the cameras. But behind me, there's this picture, printed picture of a Lego man that says everything is awesome on top of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all these photos of me standing with this little <laughs> Lego, everything is awesome next to me. Well, that's that. That's great. I mean, and and it's a, a good visual metaphor of of the day. I have to imagine. I think so. I think so. There could have been worse things on that wall. I think. <laughs> so, so I, this is we're speaking about, about two weeks to the day, right after the the call. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know last week you were in New York for for giving your press conference at at the UN. But mm-hmm. I mean, I have to imagine one of the significant sort of policy political outcomes of the Nobel Prize Committee conferring the the prize to your organization is obviously the heightened attention that it gives to the nuclear ban treaty. Um, mm-hmm. So can you, can you for, for our audience, give us the rundown of what that treaty is um, and how you got to the point in July this year that it was signed by so many countries? What does the treaty say? Well, the treaty is a comprehensive prohibition of nuclear weapons, which have not existed yet. Uh, we've had treaties that say that some states can't develop nuclear weapons, but nothing that really prohibits the use and possession and development in the same way as other weapons, like biological weapons, chemical weapons, have, have been prohibited. Mm-hmm. So we identified that a few years ago, that that's a significant weakness in the legal framework and how international law regulates in um, weapons that are inhumane and and targeted to towards civilians yeah. that like nuclear the, like weapons the inherently have some, indiscriminate weapons 
Exactly. I mean, we have prohibited chemical and biological weapons, landmines, cluster munitions because of their indiscriminate impact on civilians. But somehow nuclear weapons are okay. So, and it's because we've, as an international community, given all of these exceptions to nuclear weapons, like they somehow don't follow normal rules. Um, so the treaty tries to pr- change that, that we treat nuclear weapons like a, a weapon, not as a power tool or a magic uh, security kind of building thing. It, it's a weapon. So let's treat it like a weapon. And what do we do with weapons that cause these kind of consequences? We prohibit them. And that's how you get to elimination rather than trying to eliminate them first and then prohibit them. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that like the, the guiding principle on, on sort of nuclear disarmament and, and, and uh, elimination has always been like the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, right? Well, it's been sort of trying to get rid of something that you value very much at the same time. So how they've tried to, I mean, most states have agreed that nuclear weapons are bad and they should be eliminated at some point, very Mm -hmm. far in the future. But in order to get there, we take all these steps that at the same time, we keep saying that we need nuclear weapons for our defense. We We need them to be secure. Without nuclear weapons, we will be totally insecure. How are you supposed to give up a weapon that you treat like that? How how why would you give up a weapon that you treat like that? And and so what you're trying to do then is change sort of the politics of of nuclear. Yeah, weapons. we're trying right? to make a make it make a sort of a draw a line and say now from now on these people think nuclear weapons are unacceptable and we're going to keep growing that number or these countries. So until, to try to put them in that same kind of category as cluster munitions exactly, or chemical weapons and make them a little bit more. Uh, unattractive for countries to have and to develop in the future or to maintain. Uh, make it more politically costly to keep having nuclear weapons. Right now, it's a lot of benefits in a way with having nuclear weapons. And if we're really serious about nuclear disarmament, we have to make it also a bit unattractive and difficult for countries to have nuclear weapons. So that this is sort of a part of this kind of building a uh, pressure on, on the states and and kind of rejecting this and making it less um, interesting for them. Because we don't know, we don't see any countries bragging about their amazing biological weapons or chemical weapons, or even landmines or cluster munitions these days, because they have been prohibited by treaty. So not even if not all states are part of the treaty, they are still seen as bad weapons, something that countries with a you know, humanitarian record don't really want to be associated with. Do you see your movement as sort of picking up where that nuclear freeze movement of the 1980s left off? I mean, that people forget, but that was like a really massive social movement, but then sort of fizzled at the end of the Cold War. I think so. I think we're trying to um, re-energize people, to mobilize them on this issue. I don't think we're going to see a similar engagement as the nuclear freeze movement. I don't think that that's how people... You know, things have changed. Uh, people and people's activism and and sort of campaigning has changed since then. Um, today, for example, there's much more organized uh, NGOs, uh, civil society organizations that do a lot of kind of full-time activism instead of having a broader mass of people spending a few hours a week uh, on it. Uh, so I think it just looks a little bit different. Um, but yes, definitely, we're trying to engage, engage and engage a new generation, the people that grew up after the Cold War, that 
don't remember the Cold War and have no kind of feeling that nuclear war was um, a threat mm-hmm. or a possibility. Because uh, well, since the end of the Cold War, oh yeah, it's, it's suddenly out. becoming a little more real, I, I must say. Yeah. With and the, I think uh, that this, is, yeah. this is like an extremely depressing situation, but also full of opportunities. And I think that we're seeing two parallel trends. You have the the increased hostility between the United States and North Korea, but also the other nuclear arms states are all modernizing, upgrading their weapons, strengthening the sort of position of nuclear weapons in their security uh, policies. Uh, and then you have the majority states of the world that actually move into a legally binding treaty that prohibits and tries to stigmatize these weapons. And they are happening at the same time. And so, and so um, what, what what happened on July seventh, twenty seventeen, this year? Can you can you walk me through that that day, that moment? Yeah. So that was the last day of the negotiations process. So governments had set up uh, four weeks of negotiations, with one week in March and three weeks in in July and June, July, uh, and that's when we had the final text of the treaty uh, that had been been negotiated over those weeks and it was put up for adoption and it one government demanded a vote in the Netherlands but everyone else in the negotiations voted yes so 122 countries I think voted yes on that day and that meant that the treaty was finalized it was adopted and now it's it's uh, sort of gonna requires ratification in order to enter into force, presumably. Like a certain number of states need to yeah, ratify so it. Yeah. So now on the twentieth of September, it opened for signature, which is sort of the first step to join a treaty. So that had, that leaves countries a few months to sort of send it back to capital, do the legal reviews and stuff. And then once they've signed it, on and on twentieth of September, it opened. That was on the first day. I think fifty countries signed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now states have to states can keep signing it forever, uh, but they also have to ratify it in order to make it legally binding on themselves. And that means that they they have to go to through their national law and make sure that their national law is in line with the this treaty. And that will require parliamentary approval and debate and mm-hmm. you know draft legislation. Whatever like the ratification and, process is. Exactly. In so it, in some countries it's fast. In some countries, it's very slow. And in the U.S., it's it's a never because we we don't ratify international yeah. treaties anymore. It requires two thirds of the Senate, and they can't even get half the Senate to do anything. Um, yeah. But but which yeah, uh, it's sad. Yeah, well, on 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 any treaty, even like the you know disabilities mm. treaty, which is not politically <laughs> controversial, you can't get that one passed. Anyway, um, mm. so no nuclear uh, possessing state uh, signed this treaty. Is that correct? And did any NATO member, you said that Netherlands participated in the negotiations, but they did not end up signing it. Did any NATO member sign it? Not yet. Do you have any uh, expectation that at least a non-nuclear NATO state might sign it? I think so. And I think uh, it might take a while. I mean, they have been uh, put under enormous amount of pressure from the nuclear armed states, from mm-hmm. the especially the nuclear armed NATO states, so UK, France, and, and the United States, uh, who are clearly saying in internal documents that we have seen that have been leaked that we are very concerned about the stigmatization of nuclear weapons. Uh, they are kind of admitting that this treaty, without them participating, will still have an impact mm-hmm. and will change the way you know their weapons are seen, and they don't like it, so they need to stop it. Um, so they are fighting very hard to keep states outside this process. But I think that there's, there's huge popular support 
for nuclear disarmament and a treaty banning nuclear weapons in many NATO states in Europe, for example. There's a lot of politicians that are, are interested in this. Uh, the whole initiative was started by a Norwegian Labour government, uh, which then pulled out when it was a right-wing uh, government in place for a while. So I think that this definitely things can, can happen, it can change. Um, but also, this puts these NATO states in very difficult positions. Are you going to work for nuclear disarmament? Or are you going to li- align yourself with Trump right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and well, you know, I mean, it, it's just... Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. one of those things where it's, as, as you said earlier, you know, nuclear weapons had, you know, not until your your this this new campaign really been considered uh, more than like a tool to guarantee security, right? As opposed to mm-hmm. an actual weapon that could be used in war that's inherently indiscriminate and has terrible humanitarian consequences in it. And, mm-hmm. and, and it just seems that, um, there, there could be this disconnect that I'm sure you've identified in, in your work between popular opinion and sort of what foreign policy elites in these countries are, mm-hmm. are doing. Absolutely. I think that's also what we're trying to do. We're trying to make this an issue for people to influence their governments on because <clears throat> for a very long time it has been an elite issue and there's like a thousand of acronyms it's all very complicated and all governments will say oh yes yes nuclear summit very important but then and then have like a hundred of initiatives that don't really mean much that they can sort of um, put like so smoke screens that oh well we're, we're working on verification possibilities here and we're doing this kind of non-proliferation work there and we're thinking about North Korea there but not addressing the fact that there are countries like Norway for example that are part of NATO that are part of these plans to indiscriminately slaughter hundreds of thousands of civilians wipe out entire cities I think that that's not how we see nuclear weapons and, and I think that that's how we have to start seeing them mm-hmm. And that's the camp trying to make that a an issue that people are aware of, that the German people know that we are participating in exercises right now, this week, that involves nuclear weapons. What are they targeting? What are they practicing for? Are they practicing of, on, on how to wipe out an entire city full of civilians? Which cities? Mm-hmm. And, this and, is something I'm comfortable So I think that, that that's something that we need to sort of, so that people can engage and impact the, the political elites in this. If 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 um, the treaty is is to be sort of widely successful, um, you know that 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 it accomplishes all the goals that that you want it to accomplish. What, what what's like the likely political sort of steps towards that direction? I mean, just thinking out loud to myself, it seems you know first you would get all of of Europe on board because they tend to be a little more progressive on these issues. Then you have to kind of you know work broad more broadly to raise consciousness here in the United States. Uh, to to get them on board, even though you know we're talking like you know it could be fifty years down the road. It's it's still sort of a process that that takes a long time, I would imagine. Hmm. Well, I think it's it's also important to not get too locked into the treaty. I mean, obviously the treaty is what mm-hmm. we're working on right now, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is getting rid of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I mean, the United States doesn't ratify treaties, so maybe maybe we don't need the United States to ever sign or ratify the, or Maybe if that is not the best way to get change in the U.S. Um, we could, for example, we see, for example, with the cluster munitions treaty uh, that the United States did not participate in negotiations. It didn't uh, sign on to the treaty. But 
just a few years after the treaty entered into force, uh, the last American company that produced fast munitions announced last year that it will stop. So there are no more American producers of fast munitions because of the growing international stigma, mm-hmm. the reduction of market for this weapon. Um, it's a bad, like lots of banks are divesting from companies that produce weapons that are prohibited by treaties. So I think it's like you can see an immediate impact on these kind of things. The Lamas Treaty, for example, yes, it's 20 years now, but now the U.S. has aligned its policy with the Lamas Treaty. It won't sign it, probably out of principle. But maybe we can't ever expect the United States to sign these international agreements. But they still change their behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that's the key point. So, And I think that doesn't have to take 50 years. That can take much less time. Are you working on your speech? Uh, well, going to start soon, I think. Okay. It, it's, uh, yeah. And you'll, you'll be the one uh, accepting the award on behalf of, of ICANN? Yeah, me uh, and um, someone else, which I'm not allowed to confirm yet. Okay. But um, maybe two. Oh, good. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. One of my, I, I love reading Nobel Prize acceptance speeches. One of my favorites is from William Faulkner in 1950, I think who accepted the literature award. He's, he's a, a writer. Mm-hmm. And he he wrote, and, and his acceptance speech was short, and it was all about sort of how to be a, a writer in this nuclear age where everything can end in a minute, where you're consumed by a sort of a fear of the bomb and how that mm-hmm. it, it informs every aspect of, of your life and how you can, and how literature can sort of summon humanity's better angels in these dangerous times. Mm-hmm. And I've always oh, been so moved by it. yeah. It's I'll, I'll send you. It's it's I've always been so moved by that speech. But yeah. these the, the, these these questions um, of of like sort of nuclear annihilation tend mm. to bring out the best speeches. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, I think also. I mean, the, for us, I think it's also um, this is obviously about nuclear weapons, but it's also about civil society. And I think we're in a very strange time in the world right now, where it feels like things are getting worse. They might not actually get worse. We just might hear more about bad things than we did before. But, and I've been thinking a lot about democracy and and how we, you know, this kind of idea that we show up every fourth year and vote and that's it. That's democracy. Where it's uh, the kind of, the way NGOs works is so um, not being satisfied with that as a democracy. It's not about who we vote. It's about everything we do in between elections as well and how we NGOs can change the context in which these politicians who win the election operate. We don't have to just accept what they do and wait for the next one. We can actually change things already today. So I think it's going to be interesting to also reflect a bit on uh, NGOs and civil society at a time where I think the world really needs that kind of engagement. Um, so I would love to learn more about you and how you got involved in this line of work. So are, are you Swedish? Is that where you're from? Yeah. What, where were you born in Sweden? In uh, Gothenburg on the West Coast. Uh, and, and I mean, growing up, were you, your family, were your parents in, involved in these kinds of activist issues? They've always been very politically uh, engaged. Um, I remember, for example, I mean, not particularly about nuclear weapons, but I do remember this, that they, there was a period in the 90s where they, oh, we don't drink French wine or eat French cheese because of the tests that France did, early 90s. Yeah. 
Uh, the I French nuclear tests, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there was this like boycott movement uh, over Europe that, you know, there was like a lot of protests uh, around that. So they, they've always been very politically active. But then I, I got into this issue when I was at university and studied international relations. Where did you and go to school? I, at Stockholm University. Mm-hmm. And um, I got an internship with a feminist peace organization. But I wasn't really interested in, in nuclear weapons at all. I thought it was a pretty weird issue, irrelevant. And what, what years, uh, what, what, to, what about was this? Like what years? Uh, 2005, six, mm-hmm. 2006, I think it was. Um, I wanted to work on human rights and environment, you know, the real stuff, yeah. stuff that are really kind of urgent and important. Uh, nuclear weapons felt very old fashioned and outdated. Like, do they even exist anymore? Um, even, and then that's interesting. To to- Even for for someone who is as aware as you, an IR student, that that you know the, the sort of nuclear weapons weren't like the sexy issue back then. No, I, because it was just sort of. I mean, I remember we reading about you know realism and, and you know there was some nuclear deterrence kind of theory at, at the lecture, but it all felt it never felt real. Nuclear weapons never felt real. It was just about academic debates on deterrence. So it wasn't, and, and it was very, very connected to the IR theories rather than the actual practical things that happen on the ground in terms of human rights violation or, you know, climate change that were happening all over. So I think it was just very, it wasn't That's that interesting. interesting. It felt like a theory to me. But then I got um, involved with this organization. I got to go to their office in Geneva and do an internship. And they started sending me to this conference on disarmament, which is based in Geneva, where all of these countries get together you have all the nuclear armed states in the same room plus a few others and they're supposed to negotiate this armament but obviously they don't state has been deadlocked in a debate over an agenda for the for, last 20 yeah for like 30 years. years yeah exactly this is like one part of the un system where like things go to die yeah, yeah. It's, it's awful and, yeah, and you know but then of course yeah. i thought it was really cool because i'd never seen anything like that and just to sit there and like oh, russia and the u.s are talking about the nuclear weapons but at the same time, realizing that this is kind of bizarre, you're sitting, you know, you're talking about these kind of crazy weapons and you sit here and it's sort of bureaucratic and it all feels very, mm-hmm. again, very stale and academic and theoretical mm-hmm. rather than. But it probably appeal. is worth pointing that even though that is a um, an, an entity, the conference on determinant where nothing really happens, it does serve a political use, which is that it's sort of one of the the the. Um, legs on the stool of the the sort of nonproliferation movement as well, and the nonproliferation yeah, treaty, which is like disarmament. Yeah, except they don't do anything. It, it's it sort of yeah. serves as the fig leaf for disarmament, yeah. so that we can focus on the more politically relevant things like nonproliferation. Yeah, so it's sort of like that. They sort of, sort of and kind of. Um, I feel like a lot of uh, if you've read Nobel Peace speeches, maybe you've read some of Alma Mudal, mm-hmm. who wrote very. Good stuff about how the nuclear arms states, all they're doing is stalling in a way. Hmm. And that's how the MPT, for example, every five years, they either agree or don't agree, but they don't do anything. But they kind of just make it out like the next time, oh, now we have to come up with another agreement mm-hmm. instead of doing what we already agreed to do. Like there's never any doing, just, just formulating new language in UN documents that sort of say the same thing. And because diplomats rotate so much, no one stays for more than one or two, so it's it's hard. Everyone mm-hmm. thinks that this time we're going to do something new, 
but it's not. It just goes around, and then five years we're back at the same place. And 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 so how? I mean, you saw that process up close as as an intern. Yeah. And, but but nonetheless, that that got you first interested in nuclear issues. Yeah. So I got I got fascinated. I mean, it's a really fascinating issue, and also this kind of hypocrisy around nuclear weapons. How they can sit there, the nuclear arms states, and be so concerned about Iran that doesn't have nuclear weapons, while they're they have thousands of them, like on high alert, ready to be launched. Um, and you can see that also in the United States now, how the U.S. is freaking out about the fact that North Korea could reach U.S. with a nuclear missile. But what about all the countries that the U.S. can reach with their nuclear missiles, which is everyone? Which is everyone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, that's not... It's like people in nuclear arms states don't understand how scary their nuclear weapons are to others. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in a way, though, I mean, the U.S. nuclear arsenal is not scary to, like, Argentina because we're not threatening Argentina and there's no sort of hostile, you know, intent or, or rhetoric. So I, I can understand. No, of course yeah. not. And that's also one of the things with nuclear weapons is um, it's quite fascinating also how, I mean, you become a target as well, of course. When you have nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. um, who is the Russian nuclear weapons, you know, deterring yeah. or aiming at or something like that? That in the United States, of course. Me, um, currently, so, right now. Yeah. <laughs> you currently, you um, no. So, so I think it's like you also become a target, and um, it also feels people feel safe having nuclear weapons, but but you bombed your own people with your nuclear weapons. You've tested it on people in Nevada. Mm-hmm. And people are dying because of it, or have diseases, or have suffer from from consequences. They don't. They're not been made safe because of American nuclear weapons. They've suffered because of them. So, how did this internship? Uh, like, where did you go after that? How did that sort of change your your career trajectory? Well, I just got really fascinated for, with the sort of diplomatic world and 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 the nuclear weapons issue. And uh, I went back to university and I did a law degree. I kept in touch with these colleagues that I met. So I came back in then 2010 and started working for that organization. It's the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, the Reaching Critical Will program. That is a, kind of a, they try to monitor and, and report from what's going on in these forums. Like like the uh, so disarmament the, forums, like including like the cluster munitions and, and all that as well. Yeah, and also like the UN General Assembly when they talk about weapons and uh, the the, com- the conventional weapon stuff, the biological weapons meetings and the MPT meetings. So like a wider range, arms trade treaty meetings, a wi- wider range of weapons issues. And they were uh, a board member of ICANN. Mm-hmm. This organization. So I was representing that organization on ICANN's board from 2011, 12, maybe mm-hmm. 11, and, 12. Um, well, and what sort of and what what issues were you personally engaging with at at that time as as part of the uh, the international? What's it called the the international? I've heard of it. It's it's a really old and it's been around forever, yeah. right? The the international women. So, yeah. So they just turned hundred years two years mm-hmm. ago. So Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Um, so yes, yeah, so I covered the, the a lot of the nuclear weapon stuff. So I did the work in Geneva, uh, some conventional weapons, um, fully autonomous weapons, which was the latest issue we, we started working on. What are fully autonomous? Robots. What killer robots? That 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 idea? Yeah. 
Are th- yeah, those are those are becoming uh, more and more prominent. I, I I saw recently that there was some UN movement on, towards that end, right? The the exactly the campaign to stop killer robots. It's uh, a lot of our colleagues that are, are part of ICANN that are also part of that campaign. What, what is that um, campaign like? Like how how did that one start? Well, that started with some of these organizations. Human Rights Watch, for example, was on board um, and worked on that, and it's. Um, yeah, basically to kind of try to preemptively prohibit these weapons before they become a reality. Uh, the fact that you can't have a robot, an algorithm deciding who to kill or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, where does our sort of line go in legal terms, ethical terms, moral terms? And and I mean, this is not just something we should say that's like out of the Terminator series. This is no. um, this is present in in the here and now. I remember in grad school, uh, another student was doing his uh, research paper on this was you know even five six years ago on killer robots and all the accidents that have uh, attended yeah. these killer robots. Just like you know these these robots just like shooting up people like mistaking yeah. targets. I mean, yeah, exactly. And 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 how do you program them? What kind of algorithms do you shoot for men of a certain age with dark skin and brown hair is that i mean that do you use it in policing sort of internal affairs Mm -hmm. and Um, and so the idea behind this this campaign is to just prevent the further development of these things yeah they're not actually i mean obviously there's lines of you know, for you, you have drones that are, are automated, but there's still a person controlling it on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that there would be weapons that are um, that can adapt, but have no kind of meaningful human control over mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. that doesn't exist in operations yet. Um, and and so that was that was the bulk of your work at that NGO. Yeah, but but still mainly nuclear weapons as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one thing that I, I I was struck. I think I was reading comments that you or, or your colleague wrote about how the kind of conversation in the NGO in the NGO world about nuclear weapons for many years has been focused on some of what you're just talking about, like kind of inside baseball. The NGOs are talking to diplomats exclusively and not the the general public. Um, mm. At what point did you recognize that there was this profound gap between public perceptions of nuclear weapons and, and sort of the work of the NGO community? Um, I think it's always kind of been there, especially when you talk to friends or people, you know, they don't care about what happened at the 2010 NPT review conference. I well, mean, I that do. doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no, not but, much I mean, of a nerd, but I, I hear you. Yeah. yeah. No, but sort of like, and, and, and that's not how, you know, the commitment that governments have done under Article 6 in the MPT doesn't seem to impact the policymaking at all in those countries. They do whatever they want, and they say it's in line with the MPT, whereas the rest of the world is sort of like, well, that's not how we see the MPT. But there was like no sort of feeling, you know, we already said that some countries can have these weapons and they're going to have them forever. So I think it's it's really and and also being around all of these experts, and I don't know how many group of eminent people who are you know always putting together a Canberra Commission or a Blix Commission or this Commission, and experts' advice aren't going to save us from this issue. It's they they this is really tough decisions for politicians to make, 
Uh, and I, I, you know, I can, the example is Obama, who I think really wanted to do something, but just couldn't in the end because there was just too much resistance internally mm-hmm. from actually doing something. So taking these very hard decisions is never going to be enough with expert advice, with recommendations from a panel. It has to be status quo has to be unsustainable for the politicians. It has to be worse to do nothing than to move forward for politicians. I mean, how concerned are you that it will take a catastrophe, a calamity, whether an, a nuclear accident or in the case of, of what's happening now with North Korea, an actual mm. sort of use of a nuclear weapon for mm. people, for individuals to sort of understand the immense destructive power of these things in a real and, and visual and, and, and visceral way to change that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I have a friend who's a diplomat who usually say that, you know, nuclear weapons, before the battery, he said, uh, nuclear weapons will be banned, you know. But the question is, do we do it before or after they've gone off? Mm-hmm. Um, we have a choice in that. And I think that, yes, of course, it is, it, it, it is difficult for people to imagine nuclear weapons. And he we know, for example, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but it's a very long time ago, and people easily get distracted into talking, was it right or not? Did we save lives by doing that or not? And that's not the point. That That's irrelevant in a way. Um, the fact is that this is what nuclear weapons do to people, and this is what they would do today. And what we have today is so much more than that. And I have to imagine, I mean, on that, there, like part of your campaign must be engaging with survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes, yes. So they, uh, they've been very mm-hmm. integral part, and also survivors from nuclear testing who can, who have shared experience and, and facts and information about the very long-term impact on communities, on next generations who have also get difficulties and and problems. So it's yeah, very important part. Um. So when you joined ICANN, uh, w- were you brought on board specifically to manage the the nuclear ban treaty? Yeah. So I joined. I mean, so like I was on on this on the board of ICANN before, so mm-hmm. quite uh, involved and took took. Uh, there was no um, director in the office in Geneva. Uh, more just people with different coordinating roles for different topics. So we moved to. A system where we have one director who who led the staff team and an expanded staff team and took control over that. So I was thought it would be fun. Uh, it was just uh, as we geared up towards getting negotiations off the ground. So it's a really exciting moment. At, at what point did you realize that this treaty was actually going to be something that would be signed? That that it was going to be a a success. Um. That's hard. I know that when I when I understood the power of the ban treaty as an idea, because I was also a bit skeptical in the beginning. Because if you, the more experience you have of arms control and non-proliferation, the harder it is to understand this treaty. Because this is not arms control. This is much more, much more like Geneva Conventions than the NPT. So you have to have a different mindset in a way when you think about nuclear weapons in this treaty. And but when I really understood it was at the the first humanitarian conference because this process has been preceded by three separate conferences on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons and the first one was in oslo in 2013 and we had then the norwegian state secretary at this conference 
because um, we organized like a civil society meeting uh, before with like five, six hundred people. Um, and the P5 had just announced that they would boycott this meeting. And we were really nervous internally in ICANN. This was the first time they've ever boycotted something like this. But it was also the first time that someone ever dared to do something that the P5 didn't like. It just mm-hmm. didn't happen before that. Um, because, you know, because it, the assumption is that if the P5, you know, the veto-wielding members of the Security exactly. Council are not on board with something, there's no point in even no going through the motions. It. Yeah. So we were a bit nervous on how people were going to react. We decided internally that, no, no, it's, you know, we, we don't need them. Like, this is an expert meeting. If they don't want to be there, then fine. But we're going to go ahead with this meeting. And we had the state secretary, Gri Larsson, and she's like a very young, cool Norwegian politician. Um, and she, so we had the six, 600 people in this audience. And she talked, and she said that she'd been demarched. They came to visit us at the foreign ministry, the P5, and, yeah. you know, they gave their arguments. And she kind of shrugged her shoulders and like, well, what can I say? They weren't so convincing, I think. And the whole audience laughed. Huh. And this was the first time we laughed at the P5. And it, it just it just clicked to me sort of also the power of, like, how power is a thought. And you, we have conceded power to some states in our minds as well and we can take that back and it's quite interesting i mean i can't we're not a huge organization we have a tiny little budget we're just a bunch of 30 year olds you know doing stuff emailing people meeting with politicians just making it up as we go and the most powerful countries in the world the richest the most military strong countries are trying to stop it and they can't and it's just it's it's it just it's it's interesting, I think, in just terms of power dynamics. I don't know. Have you watched The Hunger Games? No, but I, I, I intend to. I know, I know. It, it's on. It's, it's, on it's a yeah. scene there when she has these berries and, you know, the, this evil dictator says that, you know, you're challenging the whole country. And she said, well, it has to be very fragile if a couple of berries can take it down. And I feel a little bit like that. Like this kind of, they keep saying that we're, threatening the entire world peace or world stability and the way that the system has been structured and it's it just sort of exposes also how fragile that kind of pretend power is yeah well and and, and it's it, power i mean it seems that 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 you've come to this realization that power is is a state of mind in a way right mm-hmm. and you see that for i mean i mean we talked a lot about in ICANN about other perhaps not always just nuclear weapon stuff but also our other uh, movements and processes where a small group have claimed all the power. Um, and it's everything from like labor, unionized movements, you know, and, uh, to women's right to vote, to uh, getting rid of apartheid, the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. where you, you have a group of power but with, with all the power and they will never give that up voluntarily. So but, you have to force it in a way. But in a sense, I guess what, what you're doing by comparing your your movement to those is identifying that this source of your power is the kind of moral righteousness of, of your cause. Yeah, and, and justice and equality in a way, that all states are equal. And this kind of the ability to have this threat over the world and thereby dominate with your view that you are more important than everyone else is not fair. That must be such a liberating mindset to have, I, I must say. 
Yeah, and, it, and the thing is, like, some people are like, oh, well, you're never going to succeed. And well, I think we've succeeded pretty well so far, so I'm pretty happy with this. You know, if it ends here, we still think we'd have done a good job. But also, it's, I don't know, it's just also so personally more satisfied to be on the side where you want to do something. You know, we don't know how things will go, but at least we know we, we tried really hard and we did really try to do something better. And and it started, and you have, and and uh, Beatrice, this is this is amazing. Thank you so much for your time, and congratulations yeah. again. This is after after speaking to you now, I am I am more convinced than ever that the Nobel uh, Commission was inspired by their in their choice. <laughs> Excellent, thank you very much. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Beatrice. I found that bit at the end so just profoundly inspiring. Thank you. That's a really it's a great way to walk through life having that kind of fearless attitude and it's inspiring. Uh wanted to once again plug that applications are open for the Humanity in Action Summer Fellowship program. Just click on the uh the link on globaldispatchespodcast.com and it'll take you to the application. If you have any questions about the Humanity in Action program, please do feel free to reach out to me. Alright, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.